0: Welcome to the 21st episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of fashion technology and commerce. Joining me today is Matt Scanlon, the founder of Natum, a direct consumer brand
1: that's reinventing the cashmere supply chain. I go to Bodio, like, how are we getting home? And he tells me we're staying for a month. So we end up kind of like hunkering down, and we live there for four weeks in the middle of the Gobi Desert.
0: Matt started in on a chance encounter in Mongolia, which led him down a rabbit hole of launching an NGO, then a cashmere yarn company, and finally the digitally native business that Notum is known for today. Notum is one of the most vertically integrated direct-to-consumer brands. Matt and I had a great talk about why this integration was necessary for Notum to exist, how the company is approaching retail and fundraising, and how running multiple businesses under the same roof allows a company's greater mission to come to fruition. Here's my talk with Matt Scanlan tell me a bit about kind of like your background and the years kind of proceeding up to when autumn became a thing
1: yeah so i went to school in the city i went to NYU, and then i actually left early and went to work at a vc firm here in the city pretty cool opportunity i was working with this guy he was a billionaire but he ran a pretty big private equity kind of venture capital shop and they had an incubation team and it was a lot of harvard mba like types and i'm in case you haven't noticed like nothing like that (laughs) but i joined as an analyst more on the qualitative side which means it was like surveying it's collecting data but you have to like know how to talk to a human being to gather information so whereas like the people i working with were uncomfortable doing that i was pretty good at getting on the phone and talking to people and getting people to give me information yeah but it was a really valuable experience i learned a ton and after a couple of years i quit like cold turkey you know i just like couldn't take it anymore i actually you know what i had had a conversation with one of the entrepreneurs that we were incubating and he had just had twins and he's probably 32 years old and some days he'd come in the office and he looked like he was dead you know what i mean like huge bags under his eyes like looked like he just got the shit kicked out of him and he was building a huge company before it ever launched it had half a billion dollars Hmm. in projected revenue in the first year like crazy shit I was talking to him one day, and I was like, so what are you going to do, like, if this fails? Like, what happens to an entrepreneur after that? And he, like, was really cool, and he was just like, I don't know, I'll just start another company. I was like, damn. Like, I think I'm like that. I Like, I just related with him for a second. That's when I realized, like, this, like, analyst track is not really for me. The finance world isn't for me. I learned a ton, and you can obviously do really well, but it just wasn't for me. So I went in off Friday, and I quit, and... The guy who ran the firm, he yelled at me like no other human being has ever yelled at me before. And I don't think he gave a shit about me. I left really pretty shook. So about a week later, I got a phone call from my current COO, one of my co-founders, and he was studying economics. He was in Beijing at the time, focused on econometrics. So he was like studying currency exchange rate fluctuations and emerging Asian markets. And he had a couple of weeks off and he said, I'm going to Mongolia. You're like my only friend who doesn't have a job. Do you want to fly to Asia and meet me and go check out Mongolia? It's this really beautiful country. And so I said, yes, without really thinking about like the consequences of what we were doing at all. I booked a flight to Mongolia, and two weeks later, I flew out. So it was like boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, I'm on a 15-hour flight to South Korea. I have a 17-hour layover in South Korea, and then a four-hour flight to Ulaanbaatar, UB, it's called. And that's the capital of Mongolia. So we arrived, and just some context for the story. Mongolia is a country about a little over two times the size of Texas, so pretty big landmass, completely landlocked between China and Russia for the most part has a population of 3 million people. So technically, it's the least densely populated country in the world. So just like people per square mile is almost nothing. So we arrive in UB, and UB feels a little bit like a leftover Soviet outpost that like someone forgot about. So structurally, it looks kind of like what you think it would look like in the Eastern Bloc. Culturally, it looks Asian, but they act kind of Russian. So it's like, can I swear? It was like a, a mind fuck. So I got there and I was like, what the hell is this place? Plus they never did any city planning. So there's like one road and like all the cars trying to drive down it. And so you don't actually get anywhere. It's like going to another planet. When we arrived there we were like, what did we just do? Like, why did we come here again? And we're staying at a hostel in the city. And we're staying there and we bump into a journalist and this journalist works for the Wall Street Journal. He's writing something uh, about the cashmere trade. First of all, he's like the only other Westerner we've seen. He happens to also be from Fairfield, Connecticut, and I'm from Westport, Connecticut. So we were like, what the hell? Like, It's literally like flying to the other side of planet Earth. Like, point to the other side of the Earth, and that's where we are. And I meet him. And so he says, you'll come with me to do this interview tonight, interviewing these two Mongolian guys. They grew up as nomadic herders, and now they're like kind of in the cashmere trade or something. I'm going to find out. Also, a note, out of that 3 million people that live in Mongolia, 1.5 million of them, so half of the population, is totally nomadic, Mm -hmm. like in the truest sense of the word. They don't own homes or land. They don't live with electricity or running water. They live in gares, which are what people commonly refer to as yurts. They're just like circular Mm -hmm. tent-like structures, canvas, and like a wool material to keep them warm. And they move them around like 11 times a year following their herd. So anyways, he says... Come out, meet these guys, and we'll grab a couple of beers or whatever, and it'll be, you know, fun. So we do that, and we meet these two guys. Their names are Bodio and Ishe, and that stands for something much longer. Those are their, like, nicknames. And we hit it off with them. They're, like, the coolest, coolest dudes. And at the end of the night, they invite us to meet their family. You know, they're like, you should meet our family. They're nomadic. They're in the countryside. We're actually driving out tomorrow morning. Do you want to come with us? And We'll drive you out there. We're like, of course, that sounds like the real Mongolia, like we're rugged now, whatever, right? And so we meet them at 6 a.m. the next morning to get in a Land Cruiser and drive out. Another note, there's no road infrastructure in the country. So outside of the city, they didn't build any roads. There's nothing, like maybe a dirt path or something. And we drive for about an hour until the road stops. It looks like there's a construction site at the end of the road. We're like, okay, cool. Like, We start off-roading, and it's the Gobi Desert. It's grasslands. In any event, we're off-roading, and they drive 80 miles an hour the whole way. Bodio's driving pedal to the metal, and he doesn't look where he's going because he doesn't need to really. I mean, occasionally he'll, like, everybody plays cards in the middle console between he and Ishe, who's in shotgun, and he occasionally looks back in there. I'm like, holy shit. So we're off-roading. We end up driving for 20 hours straight. We drive until it's about 2.30, 3 in the morning. And haven't seen people in 15 hours. It's pitch black. It's nothing. And we're going through kind of a mountain pass. And the engine starts to act up a little bit. And it smokes up. And smoke fills the car. And we get out. And they tinker with it for a while. And... Engine's done. Can't go any further. And so we're sitting there, we sit around for like an hour. They have a satellite phone, so they'd made a phone call and I don't understand. I mean, a lot of this part of the story is like total miscommunication. No idea what the hell's going on. Two hours later, six guys on motorcycles show up. And they show up on these motorcycles that are like dirt bikes but painted and they have like rugs draped over them. It's pretty unique. And we just get on the back of the motorcycle. And we're, like, hanging on to, like, a stranger. And they drive for two more hours deeper into the Gobi Desert to an area known as the Outer Gobi. One of the, probably the most remote places in the entire world. And we finally get to this, like, little speck of light in the distance that is a Gare where Dash lives. Dash is a nomadic herder. His father was a nomadic herder, his father's father, and so on and so forth. And he's, like, a true, real nomadic herder. And these guys are, like modern-day cowboys, like hands that, like, look, they can rip your face off. Like, these guys, like, break in wild horses on a daily basis. They are, like, manly, manly, man. anyways, Dash greets us, and he's got a bottle of goat's milk vodka. And we end up spending the night drinking goat's milk vodka with Dash and have a great time. It's, like, this awesome, crazy experience. We sleep on the floor of this gear in the middle of nowhere, wake up in the morning, and we're like, oh, my God, like, where are we? We walk out of the gear in the morning, and there's nothing for as far as you can see. Like we got there in the middle of the night, so we like kind of didn't know. But then you wake up, and you look, and it's relentless, the landscape. It goes on as far as you can see in every single direction, and there's nothing. And I go to Bodio, like, how are we getting home? And he tells me we're staying for a month. So we end up kind of like hunkering down, and we live there for four weeks in the middle of the Gobi Desert. No electricity, running water. We eat goat. We eat marmot which is like a big rat. That's a delicacy. We learned to ride horses. We break horses in. We milk goats. We graze goats. We like totally gratiated in this experience. And towards the tail end of it, we started to really ask questions because the communication got a little bit better. There was like an agreement that like we were going to try and talk to <laughs> each other. And what we started to realize was that this way of life is obviously incredibly variable, but a huge part of the population lives this way, and it's deeply tied to their culture. I mean, there's real value in living like this because they've done it forever, and it's tied directly to like the time of Genghis Khan, and it's pretty unique. The other piece that we realized later was that 60% of the country's GDP is actually built on animal husbandry, so raising goats, raising livestock – And so we're asking these questions, and it turns out, like, maybe there's a way we can help them, investing in breeding and veterinary programs and livestock insurance to kind of remove some of the variables of living like this. So we decided to start an NGO when we leave. And the NGO, we do it with the two guys that took us out there, and it's it's, it's run, but it's now run by Bodio and his wife, and we contribute the funds to it, so it's kind of a separate entity. But we come up with a microeconomic development strategy. It's kind of the core of this NGO, which... Microeconomic development is done two different ways. One, it's microeconomic loan structures where you're infusing loan capital into a community and you get the money out, but it gives them the ability to start getting things done. And it can really rejuvenate a stale community. But for something so remote, that's not going to really work. You need pure investment. So the nonprofit is. Nonprofit. We're going to make investments with no return other than trying to calculate the impact on the community. And the theory is that if we invest in veterinary and breeding and livestock insurance, a couple of other things, that things that directly impact their livelihood, then it's simple. They can make more money, right? A really simple equation being a healthier goat produces a healthier fiber. A healthier fiber sells for more money. We raised a little over 100 grand, like 150 grand for the nonprofit. And we're investing in this strategy, and we've kind of diversified what we're considering as like a portfolio of investments in this community. And a year and a half goes by, and we're building a nonprofit. And it's exciting and fun and rewarding. But when it comes time to survey and gather results, kind of figure out the impact that we're having, because people that are donating want to know, like, what are we doing? And it's nice to see photos, but it's also good for us. We want to see numbers, we want to see that. The nonprofit work we're doing is creating a real impact in the community. When we did that work, we realized that there was no impact. There's no nothing to calculate. We can't actually determine if we're doing anything. And it became super frustrating. So we plan one more trip, and we go back in early June. might have been late May. But this is the time of year where traders come to buy the material from these herders. And this is where like we had the aha moment. This is where an autumn starts. It was identifying one relatively simple and obvious thing that if you had been in my shoes and done this stuff, you would have been like, Hey, that's fucked up. Like, let's change that. People are like, well, how did you think of this idea? And there is no, like, it just happened. There's like no genius in this. And if you were there because the reasons we were there, you would be thinking of how can you impact them? So what we identified was something really simple that the traders that were coming out to this remote region to buy, rare raw material right off of the goat were operating in an unregulated and purposely fixed marketplace right it would be like trading on the stock exchange but the brokers were all getting together and saying hey like let's all fix the pricing and there were no rules Mm -hmm. no one could stop that so what was happening is the traders would come out and they knew market values they knew what they could sell it for and they were kind of dictating over a large period of time what prices were and they were coming in and saying to the herders here's the price let's say you're a herder they would come to you and say okay for your stuff it's 20 dollars.' i'm just making up numbers but 20 uh they buy it and then they resell it for 50 so they're taking this massive markup and the person they're selling it to is actually the broker they're a trader to a broker the broker has relationships with mills the people that twist spin material So the broker has that relationship. They then take a markup and sell it to the mill. The mill produces it, puts a markup on it, sells it to a manufacturer. The manufacturer makes it, puts a markup, sells it to a clothing company. We were at the source and we were like, this is nuts. The people that are getting screwed the most are at either ends of this system. They are the herders and they're the end consumer. The end consumer is getting shitty quality for a low price or they're getting the appropriate quality at a really high price. We saw all of this. And we came to a really simple conclusion that to help these herders the most, we needed to become the traders because what we could do is we could pay more. Let's go in and buy all the material. Let's get rid of those other traders. Let's buy everything here. But instead of paying $20, let us pay $30 or $40. But then a business opportunity arise when we realized that when we owned it for $30, We never had to resell it anywhere. We owned the material. So we didn't have to sell to a broker, and that broker didn't have to sell to a mill, and Mm -hmm. the mill didn't have to sell to a manufacturer. We could do all of that. And in doing so, uh, it'd be like grabbing a rope in the middle and pulling towards you. You bring the ends closer together. We felt that when we kind of analyzed this whole process, we could redefine what it meant to have a sustainable business. Because if this is what the business was going to be, selling sweaters, creating a brand – We were redesigning the entire supply chain to create a sustainable system, right? We have to operate in this system. It needs to work for us over and over and over again. There's no, like, coming in, tearing out its guts and moving to a new area. That's not how it was going to work. This is an area with very unique material. These are our friends, the people we want to support, the nomadic herders. Let's make this a sustainable ecosystem to build business off of. That's our theory, right? That's what business is. Additionally, we now understand that a lot of raw material supply chains operate this way. They're built off of the backs of middlemen who have remote access to rare materials and then take advantage of that developing these unregulated trade systems. So we just had to go in and buy all the cashmere in the region. We just needed to somehow get $2 million and go buy everything. Just jump in for a sec.
0: So It's interesting and understandable today that I guess like middlemen have become some of the demons of direct consumer brands or the thing that is often the target of whether it's an Everlane or here, you know, there's often, you know, we're
1: cutting them out. Why do you think they existed for so long? Because lack of transparency, lack of information. I mean, the internet allows people to find out information faster and easier, and everybody has an opinion and you can read it anywhere. I think just things are more transparent. It was kind of the lack of monopoly on information totally just slowly
0: degrading that.
1: Once information became democratized and you can see how every system works and it's becoming more obvious, plus it became kind of cool to go in and say, see how these guys are doing it? See right. this glasses company that owns the whole world of glasses? Well, fuck those guys. We're going to tear them down and build a company that shows you those guys are assholes and is giving value to you. Right? That's what became yeah. – Interesting for the consumer, I think. It's just interesting because
0: I feel like middlemen are inherently not good or bad, right? They're a tool in a way.
1: Yeah, they exist. And even within our supply chain, we still work with middlemen in other areas. It's unavoidable. We had control over one middleman, so we took advantage of that. Right. right? And it ended up being a really important middleman to remove because our goal was not to just disrupt an industry. It was to help people. Right. And so what our identity as a company became was, yeah, we want to – Sell that idea of it being innovative and thoughtful by removing middlemen and screw that guy. But at the same time, let's make that process sustainable. Like, let's make it a more equitable transaction. Let's create real partnership. That's, I think, at the core of what we do differently. Yeah. And we look at that throughout our entire supply chain now. Because the first step was like, okay, we got to get all this material, and then we got to make a sweater, and that was really fucking hard. Yeah. That was like not easy. If you don't know what you're doing, if you've never done that before yeah like, where do you even start you start with the money <laughs> you start with the money yeah you start with a shitload of money so we raised two million dollars not like an equity investment because we didn't really have a company what we did was took a hard money loan from a private lender he was a banker in asia and we took a hard money loan which means we had 12 months to pay it back and it had a crazy interest rate it had like 20 percent interest on it mm-hmm. and we had to use my home as collateral so I went to some guy. I was like, "Hey, give me two million bucks. You get my home if I lose it, and if it works, you get twenty percent interest. And I'll give it to you in twelve months." It was like a dream yeah. deal. It was like making a deal with the devil. Yeah. Turns out that guy was pretty pretty cool dude. But um, <laughs> we raised that money. We got into a bank account here in the United States. I transferred it all to a bank account in Mongolia. I flew to Mongolia and I took out that two million dollars. It was over two million in cash. I had to go bank to bank, and I took out all $2 million. And every time I walked out of the bank with these plastic shopping bags filled with money, it ended up being about 65 pounds of money in total. And I put it in the backseat of a Land Cruiser, cruiser, and I drove out to the Gobi Desert. And I bought about 60 tons of cashmere. Bought everything I could get my hands on that time. How would you
0: visualize that since this is just 20 tractor
1: trailers full of cashmere. Some we had to strap it to the top, to the roof. A shitload of raw material. In the processing, you lose about half of it. You wash it. And kind of dehair it, you pull out the hairs and you get fifty percent of that. So we have thirty tons. And then we ship thirty tons of it to Italy and we had made a deal with a spinning mill in Italy that was hundred and forty year old spinning mill, family run in Biella's beautiful pre Alps area. And we had worked with them prior to get to a level of sustainable certification that meant we redid their dye housing, so no toxic chemicals used in the dyeing process, clean energy usage, so only pulling energy from solar panel facilities, and uh, clean water, so no downstream effects. Pretty much having a zero ecological footprint in the development of these yarns. And did they do that for you, or that's what they were they doing? They did that for us. We worked with them together. We paid a lot of money yeah. to get them there, building facilities and yeah. like upgrading. I mean, it was big big process and, and that was important to you why producing yarns is a pretty nasty process chemicals use like dying yeah. is the worst thing in the whole industry The smell right the smell but what it does to the environment is horrifying yeah. so it was like we're gonna go through this process and i'm not like an environmentalist or anything but when i read about it i was like it's like oh. a rational human yeah i was like yeah. wait what like this destroys the world why would i do this so we wanted to find an alternative for that. And then when we found an alternative for that, we were like the energy use is just terrible. So we kinda of went through that process and we're like, oh man, like we want to change everything. And we just happened to be partnered with a facility that would come along with us because they thought it was valuable. Maybe their reasons weren't the same as ours. Maybe they had more of like a marketing angle behind it, but who cares? Right. It and got the job done.
0: I'm always interested in and I guess when people approach the environmental human thing through some sort of like capitalist in sync, right? Because like you look yeah. at like Tesla or whatever, right? Which is like, we have to do this, but it's not going to be a charity. It's going to be literally people buying expensive yeah. cars and makes them cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. And that's always an interesting mechanism.
1: I think that that is the best way forward. Yeah. I think we're going to see success in this space when capitalism drives sustainability. I think that is going to be the force. I have my opinions on you know, what sustainability means for the consumer, if it's valuable to them. And I'm pretty much a cynic when it comes to it. It's important to me. It was the right thing to do. It was hyper-logical. We're pragmatists here more than anything else. We walked into a situation where we said, Huh, oh, let's fix this. We walked into another situation. And said, this sucks. Let's make this better. It, that's all it was. Yeah. The feeling always being that we would get better margins by doing this work. So, like, at the end of the day, yeah, doing that environmental work was very important for us, but it reduced You know, energy usage, like, saved costs. It was smart to do. Those dyes were more cost efficient. We made money by improving this process. I think, unfortunately for a lot of consumers, sustainability means you pay more for it for some reason. I don't know where that got started, but I I think it's bullshit. I think it's not how it should work, right? And I think that's what Tesla's trying to do. They're trying to make a cheaper car because they want everyone to do it. I want to make a cheaper sweater because I want everyone to have one. I'm gonna do that through sustainability. Sustainability is gonna allow me to do that. That's the way forward in my opinion. So anyways, we started spinning our own yarn. And when we had that yarn, we started a yarn company and we just sell yarns now. So big companies use our yarn, Hmm. but then we get that yarn. And when we started to try and make sweaters, we realized we were a bunch of processes towards fulfilling production and things that made it really difficult to achieve any sort of real efficiency. One, your units have to be really high generally to get any sort of margin increase. Two, lead times are pretty difficult if you're trying to be first to market in something. A lot of it stems from the usage of materials. So let's say you got to get your materials, you got to get them to your factory, they have to manufacture it for you. First of all, to get your materials, you have to hit a bunch of minimums. You have to use a certain amount of yardage or a certain amount of yarn, and you have to hit certain dyeing minimums. There's like right, minimums all all these all gates, long. yeah. But, like, if you control that process, right, you have none of it. it improves customization, it allows you to move faster. So here we have our material. we have no minimums whatsoever. Our cost on the yarn itself is half as much as it is for our competitors because we're selling our competitors the yarn at twice the price, so that's a huge efficiency. But then I'm getting the yarn and warehousing it at manufacturing facilities, pre-dyed and spun and everything I need. So then all of a sudden my go-to-market time is way faster. It costs me about a month to produce a couple thousand units, where it would normally cost you three months or four months where you have to hit the minimums. They have to manufacture it. They have to ship it to you. But we reduce all of that. So now I have a business that gets a luxury material that I'm putting in the market at half the price i'm getting a luxury material to begin with that is totally sustainable so there's marketing value i suppose substance at the very least and authenticity on why we're doing things and then a go-to-market strategy that is way more competitive than our competitors so when we looked at the business opportunity it was like this is a no-brainer like we are checking off a lot of the issues that a startup has but the additional pieces, owning the material allows us to create a bunch of different distribution channels and become an omni-channel business overnight. We're manufacturing for people, private labeling. We are manufacturing our own clothing and selling to retailers. We are selling online, and we're selling our yarns. Yeah. So all our minimums run up really fast, and all our margins increased overnight. And in just year two, the business grew, you know, 750%, and we were profitable, like very profitable. Hmm. And so... It's not a huge company, you know, or less than $10 million. But in two years, it was like a this good opportunity real. to say, like, look, this works. And we know what we're doing. And we could raise money off of that was my, totally. my thinking. Yeah. So I guess two questions about this. The first is, so as
0: you cut the middleman out, you obviously have more expertise to take on, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're going. So kind like, of.
1: I mean, we have more stuff to do. We have a bunch of different businesses. Here, yeah. Right. Digital business on its own costs a lot of money and a lot of time, but I'm kind of of the mindset that doing a lot of things and making them all work together as one is way more efficient than doing one thing and funneling all your funds into it. I mean, the risk profile on that opportunity increases, but if you have a four channels, right, and you're doing everything across all those four channels, you streamline them all and they all connect at the base, I think that that's a better opportunity to prove out profitability and success faster. That's my my thing. Yeah.
0: So what was the learning curve like there though to take on massive vertical and also four channels?
1: What we really want to focus on in the first year and a half, product development, production, right? Like let's say I told you this whole story, you're probably like, "Oh, but I wonder what the sweaters are like," right? Like that's probably what you're thinking. If I got you the sweater and it sucked, you don't what? care about the story it anymore. You're never going to think about it again. Yeah. But if you get the product and you're like, "Holy shit, it is better." Boom great. Then the story makes sense. And so what we really had to focus on first was making sure that we made the best sweater in the world. Because if we had that, then you know, marketing is fluid, right? It'll always change branding is fluid, it's living, you're constantly changing it and good people can hire great people to do that. What you can't replace is incredible product people, and a solid supply chain, right? The companies that we like in this space, all have built really Substantial, strong supply chains before they did anything else, and we think that would lead towards success. And it's headed there. I, you know, now we just need to throw in the marketing and tell the story better.
0: Yeah, what were some of those hard lessons as you went farther and farther back? And then, or as you well, added four making channels. sweaters, is hard. I mean, yeah.
1: technically speaking, it's very different than making yes. uh, a shirt, right? I mean, knitting is difficult. Well, you have to know how the machines work. A stole machine is generally the. Machine that you know, most big manufacturers are using. So that's one. You know how those things get programmed, the variables. So you need an expert to be designing to optimize the manufacturing process, if that makes sense. So a good knitwear designer knows that there are variables like gauge and yarn count that produce. High quality sweaters and are easier to manufacture, more cost efficient to produce. You know, the next step is if you're going to produce 10 different styles and you have, let's say, 30 SKUs, you can optimize that whole process by making sure that there are certain variables that are the same in each one of those styles. So if all those styles carry the same componentry that matches up with the machine, then you streamline that process and the cost drop. But if you don't know any of that, and you just like, hey, I like the sweater from J. Crew, and I like this sweater from Uniqlo, right. and I'm going to go make them. You're going to really soon find out it's very difficult. The technical specifications on knitwear are also, I think, much more intense than any other styling. Maybe suiting is pretty detailed, but knitwear is really, really detailed. Right. Getting it to hang right. I mean, like all sweaters will grow; they'll all shrink. Like they're like it's, it's a living it, thing. Yeah, it really is. So expertise there was very important dealing with our cashmere right making a yarn is very difficult there's three processes there's dyeing, twisting and spinning and you know maximizing the tension maximizing usage of semi-woolen or worsted or all these different variables that when you hear them at first if you don't know if you're listening to this and they hear all that they're like what the hell are those things like we had to figure them out and know how they all worked together so producing a yarn, getting those technical specifications right, then producing a sweater and getting all those technical specifications right to make the most out of the yarns that we were making. Then the next big challenge is manufacturing that. How do you get it all made and get it quality checked and get it shipped and get it on time and make sure you're not paying through the nose for it? We got our butts kicked. We made so many mistakes. I think it's natural and inevitable if you're getting something like this started. And I look back and I'm like, There's so many times where it would have been so easy to be like, you know what, fuck this. Like, this is too hard. But we definitely got over a hurdle. And when we got over that hurdle, it was like, we did that. Supply chain development product are good. And now we can focus on the next thing. And that next thing seems a lot easier because that was so hard. And so what and when was that hurdle? And then when did you surpass? It was a unit. It was kind of a unit number, I think. We had to go through a couple development processes. So a development process of like we're going to mood board and cravely outline a collection that can sell. Then we're going to develop it. We're going to hit a bunch of categories and we're going to merchandise it and then we're going to go through several stages and sets of development. So different prototypes over and over. And we're going to figure all of that out. And then we're going to sell it. And if all that work was done really well, then it's going to sell well and we're going to produce enough units the little things that can get in your way that hold you back, like not reaching any sort of efficiency, never hitting your stride on your shipping and logistics. But when we did, it was unit number. You know, you get above 50,000 units, and it's like, oh, okay, you're filling up capacity here. It just becomes easier. the Less friction. And so it kind of glides over the surface, which is what you want, right? You want to build an engine and make sure that it's well-oiled. The oil comes with hitting certain units so and it sounds like kind
0: of sticking to core products and all that is also totally that for me that was always the hardest lesson Mm -hmm. is like balancing the creative and the commercial of like someone wants to just keep doing new stuff and you're like yo we might just have a money maker here let's double down on it
1: that's like super insightful because that's exactly what happened everybody that meets you's like would you ever think about doing this why don't you do that yeah when's the next collection and when you're new and you're like you don't really know what's working and what isn't you're like, "Oh yeah, that maybe that is better." Like you take other people's advice. And it's actually like tell them to shut up and rely on what you do really well that I think you can reach success. We have like one core differentiator from our competitors. And if we ignore that and all of a sudden started making shoes, well like then what the hell? Like what are we doing? So it was when we were like we make sweaters and we make cashmere sweaters. Make them better than anyone else in the world when we do well, is when we started to be successful. So that then lent itself really nicely to a a marketing position because it made sense that everything lined up perfectly. The product, the story, and the consumer were all kind of on the same page. But like that's easier said than done, kind of. That it's like really
0: easy to. Ignore that. It sounds like your bet was if you had really narrow focus on the product side, you could be much more broad on the distribution and and vertical side. Exactly. That time and resources are limited, and we can work it that way. Well
1: said. That's exactly the case. But it's scary to do that. Yeah. You're limiting yourself on testing out a bunch of things. So when you're like, we do this and we only do this, well, then you're not going to do other things. So... Yeah, and that took a little time to realize. But it's been by far the most successful thing. Kind of sticking to always what is our sweet spot? What do we do better than other people? Let's do that. Like people used to tell me, like, man, I wish I had something like that. Like something that we were just like better than other people at. And we did. So like what were we thinking not just doing that over and over and over again? Right. Talk to me a
0: bit about like the cashmere sweater like market from the consumer side. In terms of yeah, what's like the primer on that, and is it a good category? Bean is it a bad? Like, what's up with? Depends it? who you're
1: talking to. Yeah. I mean, to you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. The cashmere market globally is about four billion today. So, relatively a niche market, although it's growing at about fifty percent annually. It's the fastest growing segment of the luxury space it's due to be about 8 billion by 2020 Mm -hmm. so that's all of a sudden a decent sized market if you look at where the growth is coming from it's coming from online predominantly traditional retail channels are down and online channels are increasing at a really really high rate so obviously a digitally positioned cashmere sweater business is a pretty good bet right now like two plus two is six yeah exactly so our comps like if you look at our landscape right who are my competitors? First of all, there's like direct competitors. The big ones you think of, J Crew, right? For a lot of people, they were people's like first experience with cashmere. There's Laurel P on it, the really, really high spectrum, high end pricing wise. Yep. Brunello Brunella Cuccinelli is up there. And believe it or not, they own about half of the market today. Those two companies yeah. make up about two billion dollars in sales over across a four billion dollar marketplace. Right. So that should tell you a lot. Right. And Laura Piana is LVMH. And I don't know. It's does LVMH. Bruno have a
0: holding company? or is No. It a,
1: okay. I don't think so. But it's consolidated, effectively. Yeah. I mean, it's a $4 billion business. Yeah. Brunello Cucinelli is huge, I yeah. think. But they own most of the market. Then there's your really low price Everlane and UniGlo, Uniglo which are about man. the same quality. If you're going to make a $100 sweater, it doesn't matter how many middlemen you're cutting out. Like, you're just started with a really bad quality material. And then there's the 360s. Those are like big wholesale accounts, Autumn Cashmere. For people who shop at like Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's, they're familiar with those brands. They don't have big digital presence, but they make like the standard pieces and items that girls go in and buy a lot of. So that's like our perception of what this landscape looks like. There's a lot of small guys all kind of pulling at different pieces of it. Our feeling is that we're a self-regulator in that marketplace. Our quality is extremely high. So we're producing in the same facilities. It's going to do the same process as like a Laurel Piana, which sells for $2,000, but we're selling it below the cost of a J. Crew sweater. And J. Crew is being produced in the same facilities as the 360s and the White and Warrens and the Autumns that are sold at wholesale side. The Everlanes and the Uniglows, are being produced in the same facility, essentially, similar manufacturing. Uniglow's pricing is predominantly based on unit size. I mean, they're just, like, blasting out so much stuff. But as a consumer, I think it's really tricky. Like, cashmere's a really funky Mm -hmm. place right now because you're like, well, what the hell is this stuff? Like, what's the value of it? And we were just actually doing a bunch of, like, marketing research. And... A lot of times cashmere is a brand term. It's not a quality or like a material term. So they'll call something like uh, kidneys, technical cashmere, 2% cashmere. That's not cashmere. The rest is like polyester and like yeah, synthetics. It's technical polyester.
0: Yes. They right. used
1: it as a brand term, like it feels like cashmere. Very little cashmere involved. And it's like a sub
0: for soft now. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And that's a huge problem <laughs> because the consumer's like, what? Like, what is this shit? And no one educates them. No yeah. one tells them. When we started building our SEO strategy, we were like, is there any like facts written about Cashmere? We couldn't find it. There was like no predominant source. And the sources that were listed were like weird, like random, weird sites. And we we're like, well, we can probably own this. Let's just tell people what this That's stuff really is. Smart. And all of a sudden, you search for like facts about Cashmere, and boom, we're the first one that comes up. Took two seconds to do that <laughs> because there was nothing on it. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of people – are successful off the fact that there is no regulation that this isn't like a wool standard. There's no standard for cashmere. where like there is like a wool mark and like mm-hmm. there's so many regulations over cottons and wools, but really nothing for cashmere. It's kind of wild, wild hmm. west. Like whatever we say it is, is what it is, unfortunately. And so we really look at ourselves as the authentic cashmere, the like core of what it should mm-hmm. be. Shouldn't be a thousand dollars. Shouldn't be a hundred dollars either. We'll show you exactly what we did, and we'll show you how we got to this price. Makes a lot of sense. that's yeah. what it is.
0: The point about quality is really interesting because I remember we had a similar approach going in, which was we're going to make you know Rick Owens quality stuff and sell it at a direct consumer price. Yeah. And I think what we figured out, and I'm curious if this is somewhat similar, is the quality has to be good enough that it doesn't fall apart. But beyond that, there was basically diminishing returns after you hit a certain point of like, yes, this is just well-made.
1: Yeah. If you're really going to go the route of making sure something's really, really well-made – you need to make sure you're branding it super, super well. If you're going the traditional route, if you have to sell through a wholesaler and stuff like that, you don't really have a lot of leverage. Like, There's too many hands touching it. You're paying too much for it ultimately because the quality of production in China is actually really good. Yeah. It's as oh, good it's as it is it's anywhere in the world. And the yeah. cost is lower because labor's cheaper. Yeah. And like, if you're okay with that, then that's what you're getting. But like, there's no difference in quality actually right. between what you would get in Italy and China. Relatively speaking, it's very, very, very slight. And sometimes the things we think about as quality are not actual real indicators Mm -hmm. of quality. So someone might feel something... Right, well, price being one, for sure. I mean, no fucking way Kanye West stuff should sell for what it sells for. That's not better quality than another thing. You're paying for something else.
0: You're, You're paying his debt down. Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. In most cases price is that high, you're paying someone's debt. (laughs) Or, you know... (laughs) Or or,
0: or starting your own. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: No, I mean, I think what indicates quality is not always what we think of is indicating quality. I can make something feel thicker, and chunkier doesn't mean it's better, but you might be like, oh, good quality. Quality is a weird term loosely defined in this industry. And the reality is I think a lot of the definitions within the industry that we need to kind of qualify things are ambiguous at the end of the day figure out a way to make the best product for the best price and build a business that has a big enough margin to run its business and then the marketing's fluid like i said it's fluid you're going to try a hundred different messages and one of them might work really well but it's not going to work really well forever because consumer tastes are going to change the market's going to change but we're going to have less or more money yeah. That's out of your control.
0: So it's men's and women's now, right? Yeah. Did it always start that way? And kind of how did you approach the different genders, basically?
1: Well, men's was easy to do because I was a man. And I always was like, how the hell are we ever going to do women's? And now that we predominantly do women's, I'm like, how do we ever do men's? The market for men's is way smaller. The way men buy clothing is so different than the way women buy clothing. The women's market for clothing is like six times bigger than it is for men. So like... Do the math, you want to start a company in a segment that's six times as small as the other one? Yeah, I would like six times less of a chance of succeeding. Yeah, like give me a break. First of all, I think some of the things that indicate success in the men's business are hard to capture, like it's difficult. I don't get it when I see a really successful men's company, I'm like, well, that looks just like that. And like, I got of what happened here? And men are mostly obsessed, in my opinion, with fit. You know, how does something fit? All right. if I find a pair of like Levi jeans and they fit me well, I just buy. Ten pairs and that's all I wear. I don't even look at another company until like I'm ready to like maybe I start wearing khakis because I got a little older or something. But you know what I mean? Men buy very, very differently, and it was unappealing. That market was really unappealing. So we shifted towards women's. We made a really conscious decision to like let's build a women's business and everything just exploded. Like it just got much bigger way faster. And we said, one, we're never gonna sell meds to a store ever again. Stupid. Doesn't work. Oh, you mean wholesale? Wholesale, okay. yeah. It's easier to make product for women online, too. They're willing to try it. You know, they're like, oh, that looked pretty. I want that. Right? Not to, like, belittle that process or anything, but, like, just, like, I think in the consumer behavior, they see styled well and looks like it's nicely made, and they'll try it. Men don't do that. That's not how they shop. I think, generally, men don't really like to shop. The majority of men, like, we're going to go around this country. Let's go to, like, Indiana or Ohio and be like, hey, do you guys want this, like, yeah, and the dude's like, I spent eight hours at Macy's yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So we started in men's, and we quickly pivoted out and positioned ourselves more as women, but we do men's. Men's is still a decent business for us. I think sweaters for men is probably the easiest category to sell something online. Just think about the usage, right? Like, if you're going to buy a pair of pants, that's tricky to buy online, in my opinion. If you're going to buy a T-shirt, like, I don't know, not every T-shirt fits the same way, but a sweater... Small, large, or small, medium, medium, large. Like, I'll get it. Like It might not be perfect, but I know over time it'll kind of like eventually fit me better. I'll wash it once or whatever. And so we have an easier time probably selling to men online than like shirting companies or something would be my guess. Is retail interesting or relevant? Definitely. So, yeah, we're actually launching our own retail in September. Very cool. Three locations, pop ups only. Yep. We're not ready to take on a lease for 12 months. But the reality is that. We're kind of a seasonal business. I mean, people think of us that way, or people think of the material as seasonal. Our spring summer categories are probably better than, to be honest with you. Like, doing like really beautiful silk cashmere for women is, I think, a more gorgeous material than 100% cashmere. Cotton cashmeres are better than cottons. You know, like. So, are those blends you mean? Uh, the yarns are twisted, they're okay. blended yarns. So, no. it's
0: blended at the yarn level, yeah. cotton and cashmere intertwined we basically. have control
1: over yarns so right. we blend everything at the yarn level but like yeah cotton cashmere is just like a really gorgeous t-shirt anyways the point being that it doesn't make sense for us to have a, a retail position 12 months here but it doesn't really make sense for any brand to have a retail position 12 months here because 60 percent of all revenue generated in the retail industry Pricey comes stuff. in the fourth quarter yeah so like we're only going to have a store for the fourth quarter. So Interesting. we're opening up uh, three locations, three retail locations, kind of like C and B market locations is our strategy. Cost is lower. You yep. can test out markets and the marketing dollars are cheaper there so we can support them more aggressively at a lower cost. So it's a very particular strategy to, to go that direction.
0: It seems like, again, talking about the playbook before, that pop-ups are becoming
1: table stakes, basically. Yeah. Uh, like, why would you open a store without testing something? doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of, growth in the owned retail kind of pop-up space which is like you want your online experience to feel exactly like your pop-up experience so i want you to go into my store and try on some sweaters and then when you go online later those sweaters are waiting for you in your cart you know, like really intelligent CRM in store connecting to the back end of your website, I think is critical. And if a store experience doesn't feel just like an online experience, and not a lot of them do, some are doing it better than others and kind of getting there. But like we have an opportunity to do this differently. So we view it as an opportunity to make this like a really digital experience in store. On that note, it feels that a lot
0: of brands, especially direct-to-consumer brands say consider themselves like tech companies, right? Or as we were talking before, we you know, tech companies um, with tech money and all that. You also have a lot of kind of supply chain and traditional manufacturing logistics, branding expertise. Like how do you think about yourselves and how do you decide what to focus on?
1: Well, I think of us as a digital business, right? We raise money for the digital side. There's talent acquisition, there's customer acquisition. The supply chain is where we started and I think it differentiates us from a marketing position, but capability standpoint as well. We can move faster. We've just built a machine. So we think of ourselves as kind of a tech company that has a very unique supply chain behind it. I think that's a really valuable position to be in. When you look at the data that you can collect and you look at the tech that you can build out, you're like, holy shit, why wouldn't we do this? It it blows traditional retail out of the water. Like, it really does. Like, really smart CRM stacks in the back end of a website can collect all your information, can identify everywhere you go, and augment and connect ads at any location to remind you of what you maybe glanced at or were thinking and offered. I mean, it's just like a traditional retail situation can't do that. Yeah. And that's what I love is I really want to push the boundaries of data collection and the actionable items that come out of that data collection from day one. So we're aggressively building in database capability and trying to be really thoughtful about what we're doing with the data. The best companies in the space are going to do that, right? I think the best companies in the space are going to have great product and a supply chain to get that product at a good rate to people, meaning like efficiency, and are really smart about how they distribute. And that distribution comes through tactical marketing based on data. Eventually, that can all lead through better product, right? It'll cycle through. Yep. The more data I have, the better product I can make for you. So before you even know what you want, I'll have it there for you. And it'll hit you where you're least expecting. You're gonna see an ad for you, and be like holy shit, that's yeah. just what I thought I wanted. Boom. Yeah. That's I think where this industry is going. I think the best founder is gonna get the dollars to make that possible. Mm-hmm. Not the best ideas. So
0: I'm curious a bit about kind of the funding side and how much have you? What's like the yeah, high we've,
1: level? We've raised about five million. Okay. Done about ten million in sales. We're almost twenty percent profitable in our second Sweet. year. So good, good amount of dollars left over. We've done all, up to our seed. We have a seed kind of plus open, which means we've put a higher valuation and we're taking on strategic capital from you know the right partners. And we'll probably go to a series A in the next 12 to 18 months, depending on what our cash burn is. And you know, I talk to investors like, what's the burn like? And I'm like, well, I don't really think of it as a burn because one business kind of funnels cash into the other. And technically, I could never take on another dollar and we would be fine forever. But I can at any time choose to dial this up right. turn the dial forward and i'll sperm way more if all of a sudden we want to do something crazy or really aggressive but i don't know if i want to do that right now right maybe you know we get some data and i want to do it in september or october so and have that flexibility i think the best investors invest in the person right like uh they view you as like a blank check kind of person like i know if i give you x amount of dollars you're gonna know what to do with it mm-hmm. i don't need to quiz you on what you think about this and that but i know if i write you a check you're going to figure it out and get it done. Yeah. I think those are the ones that are the best investments.
0: And so is it challenging or cautious to kind of manage those expectations
1: now? Because it comes with some sort of baggage, right? That Kind of. I no, mean, or? I don't know. It's constantly redefining itself. And the right investors understand some things take a little bit longer. A smart investor, though, they're not expecting for you to become a unicorn if they didn't think you were going to be. If they've done all their due diligence, they know what you're capable of. Right? They know cash flow requirements. They know how much money you need to grow the business. They're not stupid. They're like, well, I gave you half a million dollars. I expect you to do $10 million next year. Well, that's not going to cut it because how the hell am I going to afford the inventory? So I think everybody yeah. around us has really reasonable expectations. Yeah, we want to you know, double revenue. We don't want to quadruple it again. But like… I think everyone around us has reasonable expectations and I don't really feel the heat. You know, We have really transparent numbers and communication and yeah. that's, that's helpful.
0: That's great. You have a factually very globalized supply chain right now. You mentioned Mongolia. You mentioned Italy. I don't know if there are other countries in there as well. There's a lot of stuff happening politically about reshoring, about yeah. you know all of that. One, I guess, what do you think of this resurgence of just rhetoric? I'm very intentionally not mentioning people's names because I think it's much <laughs> – I'm more interested yeah. in the policy, frankly, than the people. And then yeah. – to, if something happens there, how would that affect you?
1: Yeah, it's a reasonable concern. There will always be kind of tax-free opportunities to import. I think we're in an early enough stage that if I needed to consolidate and move shipping and logistics around, it wouldn't take a big bite out of my numbers is my like, honest impression of it right now. And I've had investors reference like, hey, do you think it's going to become difficult to import from China? Maybe it's incremental, but there are other options. I can manufacture outside of China. I can manufacture in Hong Kong. There have always been periods of time in (laughs) U.S. history where taxes fluctuated, import taxes fluctuated, and people still managed to do business. I'm not a car company. Maybe I'd be a little bit nervous. There's no technical parts or anything. I think there are certain industries where this might have more of an effect than, honestly, the, the clothing industry. Because, listen, if I'm in trouble... yeah. Every other clothing yeah. company in the world is in trouble, and like there's a different situation going on. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really not that.
0: Yeah, you're just about. betting on like a lack of tragedy in the comments, basically.
1: Yeah, but like, okay, suppose there is something really dramatic. Let's yeah. put out like a, a hypothetical. Yeah. Import taxes on everything coming from China to the United States, fifty percent increase. Great. Everything in our lives <laughs> is going to get a fifty percent increase. Yeah. F- the value of a dollar iPhone. Right. The value of everything in our life changes dramatically. So I'm still positioned relatively the same <laughs> against everything else. Yeah, went, the, what the hell's the difference? The
0: tides lift we, all boats or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there's that. Also, there are alternatives to manufacture elsewhere. Like there's a lot of manufacturing in the world. We would figure it out. We consciously wanted to build a vertical supply chain that never owned manufacturing or facilities or any machinery for that exact reason. Mm. I don't own a single machine. Not stuck anywhere. I own material, liquid material. In relationships, exactly. Yeah, I can sell my material. If I wanted to liquidate my holding of raw material right now, I could, and I would make money on it. I'd make a lot of money on it. Like I could just be in the commodities business, mm. and I could make money. So that de-risks it for us a lot. I think. How long did the original purchase of cashmere last? I didn't use it all for myself, right? I sold a lot gotcha. of it for our yarn business. I okay. had to. That was why we started the yarn business, because I wasn't going to be able to use 30 tons of material. Okay. That's 120,000, probably closer to 150,000 units at a cost of $200, I guess overnight. I would have had a $100 million business, yeah. I don't know. Like. <laughs> with,
0: with no demand, yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so probably not possible. Okay.
1: We had to sell through. That's why we had the other distribution channels, because we had to sell the material. Right.
0: So you're basically bootstrapping away through arbitraging yeah. what you have. Yeah. I guess the last two questions are what was like the hardest part for you or biggest kind of learning curve?
1: Dealing with the stress. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something that most founders don't really talk about. It's like figuring things out is difficult. But nothing ever stumped me. Like I always felt like I could solve a problem, but nothing ever stumped me as much as like the emotional mm. anxiety of one taking on funding, I mean, think about that, taking on that amount of money and putting your home up, like, yeah, that's very, very stressful. The emotional, yeah, piece of it is much more challenging than anyone kind of ever tells you. And I think you're either in a built for it or you're not. And you learn, you know. Like I remember the things that really used to stress me out. That i was like, oh my god, my life is going to be over. Like now, I'm like. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who cares? You know. So you like build up a tolerance. Yeah. And having never done anything like this, I didn't really have much of a tolerance. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that was the biggest learning curve for me was just like dealing with myself in the situation. How old's the business now? Two and a half years. Yeah. So a lot's happened in (laughs) two and a half years, to say the least. Yeah, feels
0: like. 25 years <laughs> <laughs> like. yeah so how do you look at the next one two
1: three years in terms of things to accomplish and just
0: kind of growth to go after
1: listen we're still exploring we want to build a brand right like if you were to ask me what a success look like in three years it's to have a well known brand I go places and be like oh you won't not- oh I know not him." like that's like a small thing but extremely fulfilling yeah. but building a brand comes with financial success you don't have a brand that sells nothing like really simply it's building a brand creating brand loyalty i think hitting a couple really important kpis which is like returning customers Mm -hmm. right and to have returning customers you have to be giving them good new product over and over again and so the back end of that is a machine that can develop that stuff has a reason to develop that stuff and so some of what needs to happen is like really drilling in on our brand doing that kind of surface level marketing that fluid marketing stuff and brand work that we maybe haven't done already we'll probably do it this year and then where's the name from Nadam literally translates to games in Mongolia. However, Nadam is the name of a festival that means games. In Mongolia, it's about a week of games where nomadic herders come to the city and they compete against city dwellers. That's like kind of the way it's phrased. In like archery, wrestling, horseback riding, these really traditional cultural things. And the reason we chose the name is because we felt like this festival was – celebrating culture and people and heritage and as a brand what we always wanted to do was celebrate those cultures and the people that create the things we buy more or less so it can go anywhere it can stand for alpaca in peru it can stand for cashmere mongolia wool in australia and mm-hmm. sailing cottons from jamaica but everywhere we go we want to celebrate and tell the story of the places and the people awesome man well thank you for talking yeah thanks for letting me talk
0: thanks for listening to the loose threads podcast join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on itunes we always appreciate it this episode was edited by george drake jr and my thanks to him for his time on it it's pretty cool to see all that Nautam has accomplished given the company is less than three years old. It's yet another brand that is looking at different channels with a nuanced perspective, further proof that retail and wholesale is far from dead. We have a great roster of upcoming guests including Josh Udashkin of Raiden, Kevin Lavelle of Mizen Maine, and Olivia Wright of Railier. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.